Um, if, you, if, you, if you can stand for the scripture reading, I'll be reading in Matthew 19, 1 through 12. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 1. And it came about that when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to him, testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? Consequently, they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce, to a certificate and divorce her? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. I'll pray. God, we again just want to um, bow our hearts before you and to acknowledge, Lord, that you are Lord and that we have no right um, to pass judgment on your word, but rather to come under it and to be obedient and submissive, Lord, to all that you have said. I thank you that your will is good, acceptable, and perfect, and that you only have our best in mind, which is your glory. And I pray, God, that you would speak to us, minister to us as only you can, for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be back on this side of the pond. Um, Patsy and I and John and Heather and Michael and Brooklyn were all in England this past week or so and um, had a bit of a problem getting back, to use the typical British understatement. What should have been a, like a 16-hour trip was almost 40, um, so lots of fun. Um, but we had a good time. It was a great conference. Torchbearers International has an international staff conference every four years. This time it was five because COVID, we had to put it off for a year. And it was great being together again. Wonderful teaching, great fellowship. Can't always speak highly of the food, but this time it was good. And they really did a smart thing. The first night that we were together, um, they what served what I thought was lasagna until I scooped into it, and I'm not seeing anything but green. And, and um, it was a squash lasagna. I want to tell you, it only gets better after that. <laughs> so it's smart for that conference to serve the worst meal the first night, and after that, everybody is so happy. It just gets better after that. Well, um, I was hoping Kelly was going to preach on this passage while I was gone. Um, <laughs> he didn't. Um, and he could have covered it this morning in Sunday school and when he was looking at Luke 16, but he didn't. Um, so here we go. I told you when we were in chapter 5 of Matthew, which is also about um, divorce, that this passage was going to come up and that we would pause a little bit here um, and dig down into it. Last thing I want to do, you've heard, if you've been here at Bernie Bible Church over the years, you know I preach through the Bible book by book. And um, the, the good thing about that is that every preacher would like to avoid the difficult passages. Nobody likes to, to have people mad at them. And so if you're just teaching topically or cherry-picking which books to choose, you can um, avoid the difficult passages. 
But when you're preaching just through the Bible, um, you come to these places and you have to, you have to teach on them. And so that's where we are. It's not because I'm trying to grind an axe here or anything. It's just it comes up twice in this book, and so we're talking about it as it's natural to the flow of the context. Um, I want to start here on a, on, uh, on a positive note on what is a very difficult passage. And, and it is um, to start with the positive note of God's faithfulness to us. Because whatever you believe about divorce and remarriage, it, we have to agree, and I think we all do, that marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Ephesians 5 is very clear on that. Paul speaks of a mystery. He says this, that we're talking about two becoming one. We're speaking of the mystery of Christ's relationship to the church. I think we would all agree that marriage is even more than that. It is certainly a picture of Christ's relationship to the church, but even more basic, it is a picture of the relationship, the oneness that exists within the Trinity. Because before there was the church, there was marriage, right? The church is not in the Old Testament, but marriage is in the Old Testament. So before God ever inaugurated, instituted the church, he had already instituted marriage. And marriage was designed to not simply be a picture of the church, which was very much in the future, but rather that it would be a picture of the oneness of relationship that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think we would all see that and agree on it. And so the thing to focus on here in this discussion is really the faithfulness of God. The starting point with marriage has to be God. Because marriage is a picture of his relationship within the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God's faithfulness. I mean, if there is ever any attribute of God that we rejoice in, it is God's faithfulness. Amen? He remains faithful even when we are faithless. What a tremendous hope and encouragement that is to us. And so God's faithfulness is awesome. It's amazing. He will never be anything other than faithful to you and I. We see the covenants in the Old Testament, particularly the Abrahamic covenant, and then the three covenants that flows, flow out of that, the Davidic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, the new covenant. They are all unconditional in that they do not, are not determined about by God. They are, I mean, by man, they are determined by God. God has entered into a covenant with Abraham. And God has said to Abraham, I will do this. It did not depend upon Abraham whatsoever. We see that when Israel was in the wilderness, because of that Abrahamic covenant, even though they were, not, they were grumbling and they had displeased God, God was nonetheless absolutely faithful to Israel. Their shoes never wore out. Their clothes never wore out. They always had more than enough to eat and to drink because of God's loving kindness and his faithfulness. With the story of, of Hosea, we have an entire book of the Bible that depicts marital faithfulness, but God's faithfulness toward us, where God said to the man, Hosea, go take a wife, Gomer, and, he's, and he had to told him, you can anticipate that she will play the prostitute. And in fact, she did. She was apparently a prostitute before he married her, and, he, and she went back to prostitution after he married her. And yet Hosea remained absolutely faithful to her as a picture of God's faithfulness to us. What a tremendous story. And then we get into further, and we see that God disperses Israel. And why? Because of her, as he describes, her harlotry, her adultery, her sexual unfaithfulness to God. Ezekiel 16 is an entire chapter that speaks on this, and the word harlotry or adultery is mentioned over 20 times in that chapter. And God says, he describes Israel as just a baby girl that had been thrown out on the side of the road to die because no one wanted her. And God walked by, took compassion on her, he takes her, cleans her, and when she's old enough to marry her, he married her himself. 
and he entered into covenant with her. But she played the harlot. And over and over again in that chapter, God describes the harlotry of his bride. He says, I made you beautiful, and yet you, you were such, you were a prostitute like no other prostitute. Instead of taking pay from your lovers, you gave pay to your lovers. Powerful demonstration of the faithfulness of God. And in verse 60 of that chapter, chapter 16 of Ezekiel, God says, and yet I will renew my covenant with you. He never broke covenant with Israel, though Israel broke covenant with him. You can look, and it says in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, that God gave a certificate of divorce to Israel. Yes, that is true. But he also explains in the same chapter, verses 12 to 14, and especially in Isaiah 54, 5 to 8, in verse 10, that God, only for a brief moment, forsook her that she might turn from her idolatry and that he might take her back again. And so God says in Isaiah 54, I never broke covenant with you. He is faithful, even in spite of our adulterous, harlotrous hearts. Isn't that a good thing? God is so faithful to us. We would all acknowledge that no amount of good works could save us. Amen? You could never be good enough to be saved. And we should also just as quickly affirm that no amount of bad works can sever you from Him. No amount of good works can save you. No amount of bad works can sever you. Right? We were not saved by good works. So why would we ever think that bad works could separate us from God? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And where sin abounds, the grace of God abounds all the more. He is a faithful God. And because of that, we can be eternally certain, not just sure, but certain of our salvation. Not because of our faithfulness, but because of His faithfulness. He cannot deny himself, the scripture says. And he identifies himself with us. We have been made one with God, the same oneness Jesus describes as exists between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God could no more deny us than he could deny himself. That is amazing. And we can rejoice in the faithfulness of God. Now that is the context for what Jesus says when he talks about divorce. Div marriage is a picture of our relationship with God. It is a picture of God's relationship within the Trinity. And in that context, let's read what he says here in Matthew 19. Verse 3, some of the Pharisees came up to him testing him or trying to trap him. This is another of the many times they are trying to pose a dilemma that Jesus cannot work through. And he just breaks through it like he's busting through a wet, wet paper bag. It's not a problem for him. So they came to him testing him and says, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? Now here's the background to that question. There were two schools of thought among the Pharisees. One rabbi taught that you could divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever. That was the liberal side. And then there was a more conservative side that says you cannot divorce her except for immorality. So those were the two positions. Now, are we accustomed to seeing Jesus side with the Pharisees on anything? No. It, just, it seems like whatever thing they bring to Jesus, he's going, no, you got it wrong again. Have you not read your Bibles? So this would be amazing if on this situation, Jesus says, well, no, I don't agree with that one, but I agree with this one. Where else does he do that? He just says, have you not read your Bibles? You're all wrong. And so, verse 4, he said, have you not read, then I'm adding, your Bibles, because that's what he's talking about, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. That should not be in dispute, right? 
He made them male and female. That's it. There's not a third option. There's no gender fluidity here. He made them male and female, period. That's all there is to it. Would we debate that? Shouldn't. Thankfully, in Jesus' day, that wasn't debated. Okay? Then the following part, aspect of it. And so, so, what, so before, before moving on, what he's doing here is he is taking the issue of marriage and divorce, and he is rooting it back in creation. And we consistently see Scripture doing that. In the New Testament, especially Paul, on so many different topics, he goes, let's start at the beginning. In the beginning, God created. So let's start with the beginning. Okay? Let's get back to the original design. Okay? If your car's not working, read the owner's manual. Get back to the original intent. Okay? That's what Jesus is saying. Let's start at the beginning. Verse 5, and said, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And the emphasis here is on the last part, one flesh. Two people become one. The word for one is the same word that's used of God. Behold, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Very powerful word, okay? And when the oneness of God is described by theologians as being oneness that has no parts, that has no divisions. God is described by theologians as a simple being, meaning that he has no parts. And I was just reading Norman Geisler on this a couple weeks ago, and it was just very interesting. He said, if God is three parts, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then why couldn't he be four? Why couldn't he be five? Because anything that has parts, you can take away a part and you can add a part, so it's not infinite. But God is not described as having three parts. He is one. One. A singular entity without parts. He is three persons, but he is not three parts. So, Glenn, yes, there's mystery here. We don't fully understand it. And that's why Paul says, this is a mystery. Okay? But it's not a contradiction. Three persons, one God, it, that's three. Three persons, one God is not a contradiction. It's a mystery. Saying three, God, three persons is one person, contradiction. Three gods is one God, contradiction. But three persons, one person is not a contradiction. And that's what the scripture is describing. But he's saying these three persons are not three parts. See, this is why when you talk of the Trinity and you try to use the egg analogy, it doesn't work. Because an egg is made up of three parts. God is not three parts. Every person of the Trinity is absolutely, fully God, not part of God, okay? So when God says, I've made man and woman to be one, that oneness that I have made is as indivisible as God is himself. They are not two parts that have come together. They are two people who now form one entity that is greater than the sum total of what they are individually. And God does this. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall, the two shall become one flesh. The same oneness that exists within the Trinity. This is powerful. Basic stuff. And it's like the Pharisees, because they've gotten so smart, have forgotten the simplicity of what marriage is. It is simply a picture of God's relationship within the Trinity. And we have been given the privilege of being as one as husband and wife, as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are as one with each other. That is profound, profound. Consequently, verse 6, they are no more two, but one flesh. Then here's the application. What therefore God has joined together. Who joined them together? God did. I mean, you just close your Bibles and go home. God joins them together. 
Not two people joining themselves together. But he left his mom, she left her mom, they came together, God made them one. They did not make themselves one. Sex didn't make them one. God made them one. So this tells us that marriage is bigger than the people involved. Okay? They are the, they are the components, but God did what man cannot do. God was there. That day, if you're married, that day that you were there and you gave your vows, God did something bigger than you, even if you were not a Christian. Because this is not saved just for the religious, for the born again. That's not even coming in the picture. God created marriage for all mankind, not just for the Christian. And when two people, whether they're atheists or Christians, come together in marriage, God makes them one. That's what the text says. It's a big deal. And what God has joined together, let no man separate. No one has the right to undo what God has done. You didn't bring yourselves together. You didn't make yourselves one. And you have no right to undo what God did. It is not your prerogative. There are things that are our prerogative. But there are other things that are not. And God will not undo his own works. What other work of God does God say, well, let's just start over. Let's get our eraser out. Let's get our whiteout out and just block that out. And let's just start over. A work of God. He does that with our works. Our sin he blots out. He cancels the certificate of debt against us. But what other work of God does God say, Let's just forget it and start over. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, they were getting the point. I mean, if, we just, if this was all Jesus had to say, you could just say, well, case closed. Right? Divorce is not an option. And that's what these men were hearing. That's why, verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate and divorce her? Did he? Did Moses do that? Well, you search the Old Testament and you try to find where in the world did Moses do this. And the only thing that there's really you can come up with is Deuteronomy 24. And so let's look there and see, was there really a command to divorce their wives? Go look at Deuteronomy 24. Verses 1 to 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that he finds no favor, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, verse 4, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So let me just paraphrase and explain what this is about. There is no command here to divorce. Moses is saying, and remember, Moses is speaking to a nation that is unregenerate. They are not saved. There was only a remnant of Israel that was ever saved. And so there are many laws in the, in, the, in the law of Moses that pertain to sin and controlling it. Just as we and our unregenerate nation and every nation of the world has laws that pertain to sin and the constraining of that sin. The nations don't call it sin, but that's what they're doing, is they're trying to constrain and restrain sin. 
And that's what Moses is saying. When you divorce your wife because you find some indecency in her, guess what's going to happen? She's going to go get married again. Well, why? Because what are her options? There's no self, um, social welfare program. She can't, in most cases, go out and get a job. And so she's got three choices. She can remarry, she can beg, or she can prostitute. And most, three, most women would look at those three choices and say, it's not what I want, but the best of the three choices that has been pushed on me is to remarry. And so Moses says, when she remarries, and Jesus is going to call these men hard-hearted who divorce their wives, when she remarries, you will never take her back. Even should her second husband die, you cannot have her back. So that sounds to me like not a command to divorce, but a warning concerning divorce. You cannot reconcile with a wife who has been remarried. You cannot be married to her again. So he's upholding the sanctity of marriage because he calls it an abomination to marry your wife who has been married to another man. That's upholding the sanctity of marriage. It's not an option. It's off the table. And so coming back to Matthew 19, when these Pharisees say, then what was Moses talking about? And Jesus, his response is, verse 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Okay, now, let's just pause and think about that for a second. If the reason for divorce in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 24 was adultery, Scripture already spoke about the penalty of adultery, which is death, stoning. Okay, now, so the hard heart would say just stoner, right? Did Joseph have a hard heart when he discovered that his wife-to-be was pregnant? No. He knew he couldn't marry her, but he did everything he can to not expose her because he didn't want her to be stoned. So the legitimate response to adultery in the Old Testament is stoning. And a hard-hearted man would say, just do it. Divorce under those circumstances, if the reason is adultery, divorce would be the response of a soft-hearted man, not a hard-hearted man. Right? Divorce is seeking a lesser option than stoning. Because the only legitimate biblical response to adultery in the Old Testament was stoning. And these men were not having their wives stoned. That tells me it was not adultery that they were talking about. Because if it were adultery, the hard heart would say stoner. It's the compassionate heart that would say, don't stone her. So whatever these Pharisees were talking about, they were not talking about adultery. When they said, then why can't we divorce our wives? So again, looking at the text, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. And it had to be for reasons other than adultery, because that would not have been hardness of heart to get a divorce rather than stoning. But from the beginning, it, meaning divorce, has not been this way. Now, this is where our English fails us a bit here. In the Greek, the verb tense here is in the perfect, which means that what is, was not true at the beginning is not true now, and will not be true in the future. So in other words, it has never been the will of God for a man to divorce his wife. That's what's being said here. It has never been the will of God, and how could it be? 
If God is faithful, remember the context. Marriage is a picture of God's faithfulness. If God is faithful and your spouse is not, and you divorce your wife, you are doing what God will not do. God remains faithful even when we are faithless. All the Old Testament is pointing to this. And so he says, it has never been this way. It wasn't this way in the beginning. It's not this way now. It's not going to be this way in the future. It'll never be consistent with the character of God to be unfaithful to the one who has been unfaithful to you. It will, I'll say it again. It will never be consistent with the character of God to be unfaithful to the one who has been unfaithful to you because God is faithful to the faithless. God is faithful to the unfaithful. Verse 9. This is where the exception clause comes in. I say to you, as it's commonly called, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So, five times, the New Testament very clearly speaks on divorce and a following marriage, remarriage. Matthew 5, Matthew 19, where we are now, Mark 10, Luke 16, and Romans 7. Five times. In all five places. And I do this for our students at His Hill. I found it helpful. I print out on a piece of paper all five passages. And I say, I want you to look for what is consistent and what is different. All five passages say to divorce and to remarry is to commit adultery. Five times it says the exact same thing. Look at Luke 10, Luke 16, Romans 7. They all say the same thing. Okay? There's, that is the commonality. But you will find two distinctions among those five passages. One is that only Matthew contains the exception clause. And Matthew does not say anything about a woman divorcing her husband, but only about the man divorcing his wife. Those are the two distinctions. How do you explain those? Why is it that Matthew alone has the exception clause and Matthew does not say anything about a wife divorcing her husband? Both of those distinctions with Matthew are easily explained by noting that Matthew was writing to a Jewish community. Under Jewish law, a woman could not divorce her husband. Only a husband could divorce his wife. Now, why would that be? Because marriage is a picture of our relationship with God. And see, we may want to walk away from God, and we may, in fact, walk away from God, but God, see, we're the bride, but God will never walk away from us. He remains faithful. We cannot, the, the, the bride, the wife, cannot break the marriage. She cannot under Old Testament law. And we as Christians cannot break the covenant with God that God has made with us. We can violate it, but we cannot sever it. It will always be in place. And then the other distinction is the exception clause. Again, easily explained by Matthew is writing to Jews. Because it seems that Matthew is writing to a people who had a betrothal period. And the Gentiles didn't have that. And so look at it carefully, verse 9. Whoever divorces his wife except for, does it say adultery? No. And again, I've already established we wouldn't think it would be adultery because a hard-hearted man whose wife had committed adultery would say, just stone her. That's what she deserves. He wouldn't say, a hard-hearted man would not say, I'm going to divorce her. That would be an act of compassion if she had indeed been guilty of adultery. 
So he's divorcing her for reasons other than adultery. And here, contrary to what our, we've been just indoctrinated to, say, to believe, the Bible never says adultery is grounds for divorce. It doesn't say it here in Matthew 5. doesn't say it in Matthew 19. It says, except for, and the Greek word is pornea. And it is the word that is typically translated fornication. Now, can pornea include adultery? Yes, it can in certain contexts, but not in Matthew. Why not? It only occurs three times in Matthew. And in all three occurrences of the word pornea, it is in the same sentence with the word adultery. So clearly, Jesus is making a distinction between whatever pornea is and what adultery is. Pornea in Matthew is not the sin of adultery. I can say that emphatically. Because in the same verse, he mentions adultery. Look here at Matthew 19, 9 again. Whoever divorces his wife and marry, except for immorality and marries another commits adultery. So there are two different words, and Jesus knew what the words were. He doesn't say whoever divorces his wife except for adultery and marries another commits adultery. Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality. So what does this mean? When Joseph considered putting away Mary, the word used for putting her away is the word for divorce. In Matthew 1, 19, Joseph is called the husband of Mary. They weren't married. But a betrothal period was so sacrosanct, so it was, it was a contract, but it was not a covenant. But it was a contract that was taken very, very seriously. So seriously that engaged couples, betrothed couples, could refer to each other as husband and wife even though they were not yet married. What Jesus is saying to the Jewish people who had a betrothal period, if, 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 like Joseph, your fiancé is found to be sexually unfaithful, you do not have to marry her. This is the time when you can break up with her. Who would not counsel that? If I were doing a wedding and the bride found out the day of her wedding that her, her husband-to-be had been with another woman the night before, would I tell her, you need to go through with this because you've made a promise? Absolutely not. I'd say this is the time to end it and thank God you heard about this before you said your vows. We would all say, during that engagement period, you can end it. Not so, once those vows are said. Jesus is talking about the engagement period. See, this is, we know this to be true also because in John 8, in the Pharisees, they're saying, we know who our father is, but we don't know who your father is. You were born entirely in, and they use the word pornea. They were accusing his mother not of adultery, but of fornication. Joseph, for not a minute, did he think that Mary was guilty of adultery. He believed that she was guilty of pornea, fornication. And for that reason, he thought that he needed to put her aside. This is all Jesus is talking about. To a Jewish people, he says, when you're betrothed, and there is fornication. It's not adultery. When you're not married, it, this, is a, this is a sin that a married person cannot commit. A married person cannot be guilty of fornication. He can be guilty of adultery, not fornication. And Jesus is very precise in his words. Except for fornication. Except for immorality. Except for and the word in Matthew 5 that the New American Standard uses is unchastity. Unchastity, immorality, fornication all come from the same Greek word, pornea. When you're not married yet and there is sexual unfaithfulness, 
you can break up. That's all Jesus is saying. But if you're married and you divorce your wife and marry another, it is an act of adultery. Are you continuing to live in adultery? Scripture never says that. And I, for one, as I, especially on a difficult subject like this, I don't want to go one step further than what Scripture goes. And Scripture never calls a second marriage a continuous, adulterous relationship. Never says that. Neither should we. And what I do see in Scripture is that whether it's the first marriage, the second marriage, or the fifth marriage, God does not want it to fail. He sees it as a valid marriage. It's not what should have happened any more than marrying a, a Christian marrying an unbeliever should not have happened. But does God want that marriage to fail? Absolutely not. And he speaks to that very emphatically in 1 Corinthians 7. He does not want that marriage to fail. God wants it to succeed, and we should want every marriage to succeed. Homosexual marriage is not a marriage. It is an oxymoron. It is a contradiction in terms. We are not talking about that. We are talking about the union between a man and a woman. God doesn't want any marriage to fail because marriage is a picture of his covenant faithfulness, of the oneness that exists between him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The disciples said to him, very quickly, the disciples said to him, this is no longer the Pharisees, so clearly the disciples had been enculturated. Okay, they had bought into the mindset of the world, and, and so they're going, whoa, Jesus, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to even get married. You mean divorce is not an option? Then why even get married? I will never forget, I've told this story many times to our students at His Hill. I used to, you know, we had a, a, a walking kind of street when I was in college, in college on the campus. It's called Faculty Row. All the faculty had homes up and down the street. And it was a cul-de-sac at the end of it. And so I would go for walks in the evening. Occasionally, a girl would join me, believe it or not. <laughs> it, was, it was surprising to me, too, at the time. And I remember I'm walking one evening with this girl, first time I'd walked with her, and, um, and we hadn't gone 50 yards. And we've never had to spend any time together. I mean, this, is, this was almost like a date, first date. And we've gone about 50 yards, and this girl says to me, so, do you think divorce is ever an option? And I go, <laughs> well, hell do. Who, who starts a conversation like that? And I'm, you know, I, I don't know, I'm 20 years old, 21 years old or something, and I honestly never really thought about it. And she puts me on the spot. And it's like her saying, walk's over, bud, if you don't answer this the right way. Why continue in a relationship with a guy who thinks divorce is an option? Right? And that's what she wants to know. So, do you think divorce is ever an option? And I go, no, I don't. Good. And we had a lot of walks after that. <laughs> Smart girl wanting to get the big issue out in front from the very beginning. Because you feel safe, right? Do you feel safe and secure in your salvation? Why? Because God will never divorce you. It's the only way you can feel safe. And how can a husband and wife ever feel safe with each other if divorce is an option? Because you might finally cross that invisible boundary, and then it's over. What was the previous passage in Matthew 18? Forgiveness is unconditional and without limits, just like God's forgiveness of us. Isn't it interesting that Matthew would put those two things together? 18, how many times do I forgive my brother? 40 times 40. There is no Limit to the forgiveness. Next passage. You mean I can't divorce my wife? What did I just say? Forgiveness is without limit. Why do you divorce your wife? Because of hardness of heart. Why the hardness of heart? Because I'm done with my wife and what she's done to me. Or she's done with me. Right? We've had it. 
In other words, forgiveness is no longer an option. But as long as you're forgiving, you'll stay together. But when you're done with forgiving, you're done with the marriage, and divorce looks very appealing. I heard the bell. I'm sorry. I can't stop at verse 11 or at verse 10. Look at the, I want, look at the last part here, okay? There are eunuchs who were born that way from the mother's womb. There are eunuchs who made eunuchs by the men. There are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And he who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Why is this funny way to end this topic? Hey, let's talk about divorce. I don't want to talk about eunuchs. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? Well, I'll tell you. Okay? Now, without getting into all the details, if you know, have you know anything about animals, the, the, the difference between a bull and a steer is what Jesus is talking about here, okay? That's a eunuch, okay? And so a eunuch, it's a permanent condition. You make a bull a steer, you can't undo it, okay? It's done. So Jesus is saying, you guys cannot accept. None of them could accept. None, no, make no mistake, none of the Pharisees, none of the disciples could accept what Jesus was saying. Clearly, he was not siding with either school of thought. None of them like his answer. And what he's been saying is, marriage is permanent. It's like getting black ink on a white shirt. You're not getting it out. It, it, two people become one. You cannot undo what God has done. That's why if you do divorce and remarry, that's why God says it's adultery. Because in God's sight, you're still married. You see? And he says, you can't accept this. He goes, I get it. I know you can't all accept that. This just what Jesus is saying. I know you don't get it. I know you can't accept it. But let me tell you something. Most of you men sitting here would sing the praises of those rare men who go so far as to make themselves eunuchs, a permanent condition that cannot be changed so that they might walk in undistracted devotion to God. And you would say, what a man, what sacrifice, what commitment. Every one of you in this Jewish community would, uh, would herald these men who would willingly make themselves permanently eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. And you same guys have a problem with the permanency of marriage? That there are no exceptions? That it is something that cannot be undone? Hypocrisy. Who's got the issue here? Jesus is exposing the hypocrisy of their hearts. You're, you, some of you would be willing to make yourselves permanently for the sake of the kingdom of God a eunuch. But for the sake of the kingdom of God, you won't stay with your wife. Who's got the problem? And see, this is what it's about. It's not about me and my happiness. Marriage is bigger than you and me. God has done something. It's bigger than us. And if you ever want to live for something bigger than yourself, then see marriage for what it is, bigger than us. It's not about us. It is about Christ and his kingdom. And we have been put here on this earth to image God. And the living God lives in us to bear witness of himself. And marital unfaithfulness does not bear witness to God. And refusing to forgive your spouse, no matter what they have done, does not bear witness to God. But forgiving unconditionally and staying committed to this relationship because it's a covenant before God, that bears witness of God. So the next time you watch a movie about a person who makes himself a priest or a nun and forsakes marriage, and you go, wow, what dedication, what devotion. Transfer that over to being married. And we should say the same for those that are in difficult marriages, but have chosen to honor God and honor their vows. We should esteem them highly. We should herald their devotion, their selflessness, their dying to themselves, just as that nun or priest who says, I'm willing to give up all for the sake of the kingdom of God. Marriage is dying to ourselves for the sake of the kingdom of God. I'll close this in prayer.
Lord, I thank you that your ways are good, perfect. I pray that they would be acceptable. In this passage, God, as you laid out to us your good, acceptable, and perfect will, we saw that it was far from acceptable to the Pharisees and the disciples. Lord Jesus, I pray that our hearts would be different. You've spoken clearly here, God. It is only the hardness of our hearts that would make us want to look for an exception where there is none. May we humble ourselves, God, and come under you and recognize that we're not here to have our hearts fulfilled by our doing. But that fulfillment of heart only comes when we yield to you and your heart and your will. Protect us, O oh God. I'm not ignorant, Lord, that there are many marriages are struggling. It is impossible, Lord, to live this way apart from your enabling supernatural grace. Apart from you, God, we have to say as these disciples then did, then why even get married? But I thank you, Jesus, that you are in us to fulfill all that you have said. And we do not live from our own strength. We couldn't. We live from Jesus. God, may we turn to you in desperate dependence upon you as we recognize that it is not in us to hold a marriage together. You're the one that makes two one. And only by you, God, can two stay one. And I pray that we would continue to come to you humbly, desperately, with thanksgiving, God, that you can do what we cannot. In Jesus' name.